to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 68. Uh, so many episodes piling up, and it's it's really great to feel that this show is progressing the way that it has, that it's contributing to pushing forward this Counterpunch project, which is really one of the central goals of this show, because as far as I'm concerned, Counterpunch, like many other outlets in the alternative media, is so critical today, particularly as we have so many things happening, not only around the world, but I mean, even these witch hunts in the media against the alternative media, everything is a plot by the Russians, everybody is a puppet of the Russians, Counterpunch being singled out on the Washington Post and elsewhere. This is a critical, critical issue, the independence of alternative media and free speech, and Counterpunch is one of those publications that has stood up to this bullying, that is standing up against what needs to be rightly described as this sort of neo-McCarthyism. And so one of the ways that you can contribute to fighting back against censorship, contribute uh, to really pushing back against what undoubtedly is going to become an even more difficult climate for alternative media is by supporting Counterpunch. You can get a subscription to the print magazine, an excellent, excellent magazine to have to refer back to, the artwork, all of that. You can also donate through the website using PayPal pal and and other uh ways of doing it you can also share counterpunch's content online on social media via email with your friends with your family uh all of those things are good ways of supporting this show and supporting uh counterpunch and the uh independent media in general and of course also let me just throw one last thing in there positive reviews for this show on itunes and elsewhere are also very helpful in promoting the program bringing it to more people hopefully using the this as a conduit for really expanding the conversation on a number of key issues. One of those key issues is, of course, Syria, the conflict in Syria, what's been going on the last five years, and I feel really fortunate to have an excellent guest to talk about that with me today. I'm happy to welcome onto the show David Hurst. He is the editor-in-chief of Middle East Eye. You can follow him on Twitter at David A. Hurst, that's D-A-V-I-D-A-H-E-A. R-S-T. David Hurst, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I really, really wanted to have you on to discuss what's happening in Syria and in general, uh, the strategic picture. You had an excellent article in Middle East Eye just a few days ago. Uh, let's see, Wednesday, December 7th, headline, What Will Happen When Aleppo Falls? I think this is, I have to say, one of the best pieces that I've read on the strategic situation, on the political situation happening there. So I want to just begin with a broad question. And this is really for the benefit of listeners who may not be following what's happening in Syria on a daily basis. David, can you give us a, a summary or an overview of what's happened and what's changed in Aleppo in recent weeks and days? Well, um, the news from Aleppo only gets worse and worse. Um, uh, a big part of the rebel-held uh, Aleppo has fallen to a new uh, government offensive. Uh, key to that was uh, uh, the Russian des decision, basically, to intervene um, over a year ago. That basically turned the co course of the war. The Russians say they intervened because, at the request of Damascus, uh, because Damascus itself was about to fall, was two months away from falling, to 
people they describe as jihadis. Uh, the whole problem, as we'll go into this later in the conversation, no doubt, is um, uh, basically definition, who is a jihadi, who is a legitimate rebel, who is not. Um, this comes at the end of a five-year, an extremely bitter civil war in which uh, half a million people have died, um, millions uh, have fled the country, millions more have been internally displaced. But the current phase of the war is uh, Assad hopes the final one, um, and that is retaking Aleppo. Of course, there and there are hundreds of thousands of civilians in uh, uh, Aleppo. Initially, the Russia's demand was that Nusra, the fighters who are allied, some of them to Al Qaeda, um, leave. Uh, they haven't left. Um, there are conflicting reports about uh, how, to what extent, they are supported by the population. But if you are bombarded all the time. Uh, from the air, if your hospitals are bombarded, if your markets are bombarded, if your homes are being bombarded, what generally happens to the civilian population is you basically welcome anyone who fights back on your behalf. So I think um, trying to untangle who is Nusra and who is uh, the uh, um, Free Syrian Army, if that still exists anymore as, a, as, a, as an entity, is getting increasingly difficult. Um, uh, Damascus is winning. Uh, it's brutal. Um, uh, of course, all the sort of condemnation by people like Kerry and, and the West, uh, um, I also uh, find pretty difficult to take because... They were in a position of backing the rebels initially and then um, then withdrawing their support. Um, uh, and so the rebels can say to them, hang on a moment, you told us to or you you supported us when we were in, in our revolution against uh, Damascus. And then you sort of failed to support us. And now this is what has happened. So I think everyone, everyone in this dispute, it's very difficult to describe, has got a lot of blood on their hands. One of the key questions, though, that comes to my mind, just in unpacking some of what you said there, um, one of the complicated factors here, uh, in many ways, it could be seen as a good thing and a bad thing, is that unlike in previous conflicts where the United States and its European allies are obviously dominant and they, they, they shape the narrative in terms of, you know, the mass media, in terms of how the conflict is discussed, in this case, with the with the Russian intervention, you have Russian media, you have pro-Assad media, you have other media outlets providing what they would describe as the counter-narrative and someone who's trying to parse through both sides of this conflict and try to understand the reality, it becomes very difficult because on the one hand, you'll read Western sources talking about, uh, you know, all of the civilians in Aleppo who are in harm's way. You read Russian media or Syrian media or uh, Iranian media, and you hear reports that they're liberating parts of Aleppo that are, the, that are ghost towns, that this 250,000 civilian number was manufactured by the Western media, that it's probably much, much smaller than that. And my question is, how do we make sense of these conflicting narratives? And is that really part of the uh, key questions to take out of this conflict, the way that media has been used? Yes, I, it, it, it's, it's very, very difficult. I mean, I think um, it's, it's difficult as a journalist to find out what's actually going on. I mean, 
the Middle East Eye was set up basically as a website that 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 um, was specifically independent of any government um, uh, and wanted to basically report um, the news, certainly the Middle East news from the ground up. Um, we have got uh, a reporter in in Eastern Aleppo. Um, uh, the stuff he sends us is absolutely frightening um, in terms of uh, just the sort of callousness to human life uh, that's been displayed in in, in the bombardments. Um, it's it's extremely difficult to untangle the uh, the, uh, the truth. I mean, I just come back recently from hearing Lavrov in 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 a conference in Rome and. Um, on on one on the one hand, Lavrov sounds very plausible. Um, I'm sorry, listeners. He's talking about the Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes, Sergey Lavrov, the uh, Foreign Minister, um, and he has a very straightforward narrative, and that narrative is that from Afghanistan uh, on towards Libya. Um, uh, the West and in particular Washington has been using uh, Salafi jihadis as a lever and they're only to find that this weapon turned on them most significantly uh, 9-11 um, and that the West hasn't learned its lesson and it continued to uh, be involved in the business of regime change only to find that it couldn't rebuild the states and uh, it was um, it was a, a breeding ground for terrorism. Um, there is quite a lot. There's certainly a, a huge amount to that argument, certainly when it comes to Libya. Uh, uh, Russia is quite right uh, to think that um, it was regime change that was at the heart of uh, all the uh, UN um, uh, resolutions and that what that uh, intervention did, which was basically a French-led uh, NATO intervention. Famously, uh, Obama used the words, um, we'll be leading from behind, um, was in fact um, inject a huge amount of arms into Libya, um, and it split up the whole Libyan state. Um, it also uh, triggered a new intervention in Mali because the fighters who left from Libya turned up in Mali. Yes. Um, all of that's true. However, however, for Syria, um, Russia's actions, as opposed to Sergei Lavrov's words, tell a slightly different story. And according to independent analysts, although, of course, Russia uh, immediately dismisses these figures, um, but we have, there's a body here who is, in fact, an Alawite uh, Syrian who runs a thing called the Syrian Observatory for, for Human Rights. They, they make a very um, forensic uh, calculus of uh, who's been killed, where, in Syria, on both sides. Uh, and their figures, just to quote one source, uh, is that just over 10,000 people in Syria have been killed by the Russian airstrikes between the 30th of September 2015 and the 30th of October this year, of whom round about 3,000 were members of IS. OK, all right, they're fighting IS. 3,000 fighters uh, were also killed from rebel and Islamic factions. So that could include Nusra, but it also could include rebels that the West supports. 
um, and who are basically defected uh, uh, Syrian army soldiers. And another 2,500 males over the age of 18, 1,000 children, 584 women. So in other words, the Russians have killed almost the same number of civilians, people who are classified as civilians, as they did IS fighters in their bombing. Um, I've had a personal experience of, of what it's like to be on the receiving end of Russian bombing when I was a reporter uh, for The Guardian um, in the late 1990s uh, in Russia. Um, and uh, I was in Grozny many times, and I saw for myself uh, how uh, the Russian forces attack cities, and I also saw what happened to the Chechen rebels themselves. Um, it's a complicated story, but basically it's a, quite a simple one as well. Um, uh, and uh, the Russian the, the the Russian bombardment had absolutely uh, no concern for civilians trapped. Um, made no difference who was a fighter and who was a civilian in that conflict. And that insurrection was extremely bloodily uh, put down, not just in that war, but in the subsequent war that um, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, became famous for um, in, in 2000. And so my uh, gut instinct is that um, uh, uh, Aleppo is a very bloody affair itself um, and that when the Russians say uh, they just want the rebel fighters out, um, I personally don't believe them. I, I personally believe that they are a fighting force for one side, and that is that is Assad's side. Um, I also I've also seen so much of uh, what has happened, uh, not only uh, in the war but in um, uh, government-held areas, uh, how they treat prisoners. I've also been to the refugee camps in, in Jordan and got their testimony about why they fled Syria, that I'm personally convinced that, um, uh, yes, there is there is fault on both sides. But um, when people say that Assad has and Assad's bombing has killed 500, uh, half a million people, I basically believe that figure. Yeah. And, you know, I will say I will say that I think that there are some difficulties when we're trying to put numbers to some of these things. For instance, you know, you, you mentioned the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is based in the UK. And on the one hand, I think that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that backs up some of their numbers. On the other hand, as a journalist, it's it's impossible to actually verify in a, in a true journalistic sense. So kind of what you're getting at, I think, is that a lot of what we end up uh, believing or saying is rooted in facts, but some of it is also taken on faith. And I think that that is part of the difficulty in really uh, understanding the reality of what's happening in Syria is that so much of it is colored by politics, by what your own political interpretation of the situation is, and where you like to get your figures and your facts. And so that, to me, is part of the problem in having a conversation about Syria in the West. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, all these facts, are so-called facts, are, are, are used to support one argument and, uh, against another. Um, this, is a, this is a particularly uh, awful civil war. Um, and one's got to say also that uh, when the rebels are being bombed, um, they fire rockets. Uh, uh, the latest figures that, the, 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 again, 
as you say, one can't verify from um, these uh, attacks is that since the 15th of November, something like uh, 129 people, including 40 children, have been killed on the rebel side. Um, sorry, have been killed on the government held side of West Aleppo. Um, that's from rocket fire, yeah. which is completely indiscriminate, which has been charged, which has been fired for, by by the rebels in East Aleppo, and and it is said another 400 civilians, 45 of them children, have been killed in East Aleppo in the same period by uh, by the bombing. I mean, anecdotal evidence again, but um, a, a lot of the white helmets are saying they simply haven't got the ability to recover bodies from under the rubble because they are being bombed um, uh, as they try to do so. It's pretty horrendous. I mean, to sort of cut the story short a little bit, I think what's happening is that um, on on the big picture, um, Assad uh, thinks he's winning um, and and the Russians think um, he's winning as well. um, And that once... East Aleppo falls, and I think that's possibly only a matter of time. Um, uh, Russia and uh, uh, Assad will rush back to the negotiating table and say, fine, right, now let's get a uh, a conference together. What will happen on the rebel side, of course, is uh, the exact opposite. Uh, that um, The great danger is that they will uh, now uh, start uh, basically an IED war against uh, the Russian-held um, and the uh, Syrian government-held uh, territory. Um, and they will act very much as the Taliban has done um, uh, in, 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 in Afghanistan. And, and so my, my um, initial feeling when Russia intervened was uh, that it would prolong the war. I think what we're seeing is both sides trying to maneuver um, a uh, a better position at the negotiating table. I yeah. always thought I always thought it was unrealistic for the rebels, for instance, to say, and here I agree with Russia, that before you start talking to the government side, um, Assad has to go. That could be an outcome of the negotiation, but it can't be a precondition of it. Of course, I mean that was always an absurd uh, an absurd uh, you know prerequisite for negotiation and I think that to a certain extent that was probably more a product of uh, the backers of many of the rebels rather than the rebels themselves I think that the Saudis and the Qataris and the Turks were the ones to a large extent really pushing the Assad must go before any negotiation angle uh, of course they had their you know the, the people that they were backing on the ground and I just want to make one last point before we move on to some of the other things that you highlighted in your very important important article. Um, and, and that last point is about language and what language tells us about uh, the not only the reality of the conflict, but also the perspectives of those speaking on it. For instance, if you do an examination of the media covering Syria and covering Aleppo specifically, you can glean quite a bit about the language that they use. For instance, it has Aleppo is Aleppo on the verge of falling? Or is Aleppo on the verge of being liberated? You see, those two words, I think, are very significant in telling you what kind of information is being presented to you. Yes. Um, 
I mean, if you think of it in terms of civilians, um, and you ask the civilians who have been under that ferocious bombardment, right, whether they are happy uh, to, that the government are uh, the government forces are going to take over, whether in fact they have uh, um, used the, the humanitarian humanitarian cor uh, corridors that have been set up, um, the answer is uh, you must be crazy because uh, they're the guys that bomb us. Um, so if you just take that perspective, um, uh, talking to civilians, uh, not to soldiers, um, they're terrified. And they're terrified because these were the same guys that dropped barrel bombs on their hospitals. You know, I uh, wonder, I wonder, David, and I'm not, and I do agree with you, but I just, I wonder, is that also partially at least a product of the fact that the people who would give different answers have long since fled to Turkey or elsewhere? In other words, if you were a government loyalist and Aleppo had fallen, uh, didn't, weren't you one of that mass migration who probably left? Well, uh, these guys can't leave because they're surrounded. Um, if, 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 if they could leave, they would have done. But, um, you know, they've witnessed so many horrors themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think, you know, we're in a very, very typical civil war where, um, and I met this reporting in, in Yugoslavia, um, uh, where there's zero trust between the two sides. There have been, there have been massacres. Again, you know, when we talk about the solution, people say we're Syrians. We're not. Sunni, we're not Shia, we're not pro-anti-government. Uh, uh, but in this situation, after so many horrors have been visited on and by both sides, you have zero trust. Yes, so, um, that's and, and that's and, and that's what we're talking about. Um, so, so yeah, liberation is loaded word. Uh, um, uh, falling is, is 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 a loaded word. But you've also got, you know, independent of the various narratives. Um, of, of, of the governments that both of us distrust, um, you've got terror. You know, you've got the you, you've got the genuine, uh, um, you know, real terror that that, that of, of of the people who have been bombed themselves. Um, and I spent a lot of time talking to to refugees, um, not necessarily people who were remotely um, uh, favourable to to the rebels uh, and who also agreed that Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Qatar had pumped a lot of uh, arms into this cauldron without actually doing any of the fighting themselves. Um, you know, ex-government employees, um, and they told me their stories of, of, uh, of actually what happened. Um, and, I'm, and that's why I say, you know, that there, that there is a reason why so many people have left of their own accord. Um, and, and that's and that's the sort of brutality that's been visited um, uh, uh, on them. There's no doubt. And again, when we look at responsibility and we look at um, the, the, the trajectory that this war has taken, I think that's also really critical. And here I will agree with uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov when he draws the parallels to Afghanistan in the 1979 in the 1980s and also to Libya more recently and other examples as well. I mean, we can obviously point here in the United States, at least we could point to U.S. Uh, US actions in Central America in the 1980s to, to point 
point out the fact that U.S. intelligence has been very much central to funneling these weapons and to funneling these fighters and to fomenting this war. I mean, the New York Times, I, I always recall this story because I've cited it 800 billion times that uh, June 2012, CIA said to steer arms to Syrian rebels. So in, in, in a very real sense, I think when we look at this conflict, we also have to look at it both in terms of a war in Syria with all of the complexities, but more broadly in terms of the geopolitics as part of a longer trajectory of U.S. and U.K. and, and, and French neocolonial tactics for their geopolitics in the region. Yeah, this, they, they, they undoubtedly steered arms. Um, those arms ended up, ended up, of course, in uh, what they call the wrong hands. Um, and uh, then they stopped steering arms, uh, but kept encouraging, um, you know, for, one, for, for the first part of the year, all we were getting were briefings saying Assad's just going to fall. Um, uh, so and so is defected. So and so is defected. Uh, you know, re remember all the, all the, all the stories that were yeah. being fed. Assad's by. cousin, Assad's friend. Assad, you know, all of these people leaving every single day. And what happened, of course, was was um, that the army solidified around him, but they did so on sectarian terms. So the core of the army became Alawite, um, and uh, and and an awful lot of his Sunni officers actually left. Um, but the regime itself uh, uh, stayed on. On the other hand, right, or the sort of counter argument to all of this, when, when uh, Sergei Lavrov says uh, we're fighting for, uh, not for Assad, but we're fighting for the Syrian state, on the other side of that, you can actually say, well, what is left of the Syrian state? Exactly. You know, what, you know, what is, what, you know, what's, what's happening? And what you've got is a bunch of militias. Um, even even in places like Latakia, you know, which is the Christian side of it, which is uh, or the the you know the Syrian Orthodox side of it uh, of the country, you've got a bunch of militias, um, and um, you haven't really got central uh, control, and uh, people are equally terrified there. So you have a um, it, it's very difficult now to talk about keeping the Syrian state. The only only way in which any of this makes sense is if the fighting actually stopped. There was a ceasefire. And then you got round to say, well, how, how are we going to live with each other now? Uh, what are we going to do with the millions of refugees outside? Are we going to give them the vote? Um, all of these sort of things. But we're a long, long way away from it. Um, I have a feeling that this, in my gut, I have a feeling that this is now just you know, one inflection point in a very long war. There's going to be lots more fighting to become, and um, um, and you know, there's 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 this uh, in in Rome. There, there were a bunch of foreign ministers there. There was also um, a UN delegate there who was who was uh, uh, you know responsible for Syria, and they came out with sort of very glib phrases like, "This is a proxy war, therefore we need a proxy feat, uh, peace." But I'm not even sure that that's true. I'm not even sure that uh, any of the people who are arming the rebels can actually control them. Um, I think they're a force unto themselves now. Um, uh, and even if uh, Turkey or, or, or uh, Qatar or um, uh, any of the or Saudi, um, I mean, the Saudis, for instance, the Saudis are, are uh, they pay people. 
um, and they don't take responsibilities for their actions. And um, um, they are very uh, implicated in, in, in the destruction that's been uh, wreaked. Yep. But that doesn't stop uh, you know, Boris Johnson, our foreign minister, or, or your new administration from beating a path to the Saudis that we are busy selling arms to. Uh, and and I, I don't think any uh, Washington government or any government in, in, in London or whatever color is going to break that relationship up. Oh, there's no doubt. And look, the Saudis can't even control the war in Yemen that they allegedly themselves are prosecuting. They certainly can't control uh, events on the ground in Syria where they have proxies and their proxies have proxies. So so I'm, I'm very suspicious of there being a proxy peace. There's certainly a proxy war. But I don't think there's going to be a proxy piece. I don't think uh, after um, uh, after the fighting in Aleppo has stopped, I'm not sure you're going to be able to control people and control either fighters uh, from stopping to attack a Russian or uh, government positions. What needs to happen, obviously, is there has to be a ceasefire. Yes, I, I agree with that, although how we get from where we are now to a ceasefire that is actually um, legitimate and that has a chance of holding up, I think, is a little bit of a gray area. But uh, we're, we're going to head to a break in a minute. But before we do, I just want to shift a little bit and ask a different question, again, related to something that you wrote about in your piece. And I, again, I, I just want to commend you on the piece. I think it was an excellent one, and I recommend everybody check it out. Again, this was uh, entirely what will happen when Aleppo falls at Middle East Eye uh, Wednesday, December 7th. Um, and one thing that you mentioned in that article is the way in which the transition from one government to another in Western countries uh, is exploited by actors within the conflict. You mentioned how uh, the Israeli state exploited the transition from George Bush to Barack Obama to uh, execute their Operation Cast Lead and, and how how that really, that, that vicious campaign that the Israelis waged, how that was directly related to U.S. politics. And you noted that uh, you think that in some ways, or in a lot of ways, Putin and the Russian government is exploiting the transition to Trump. My question is, what does the, uh, the, the use of this period of transition, what does that tell us about Russia's strategy, and what does that tell us about how Russia interprets what Trump and the Trump administration is going to do vis-a-vis -vis Syria? Well, um, we're all fascinated by um, the comings and goings out, in, in and out of Trump Towers. Uh, and um, fascinated is a nice word, David. That's a very nice word to describe it. Sickened uh, might also be appropriate. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, but and and of what sort of administration that this is going to be? Um, uh, Putin obviously has uh, is is waiting for a number of results. Um, the Putin story is actually a, a quite an interesting one. Um, it's one that I partially covered myself when I was when I was there. Um, the rise of someone like Putin, who is a sort of who is a national a Russian nationalist, uh, he's also an oligarch, uh, isn't coincidental. It is a result of how we mistreated we, uh, meaning the West, but particularly 
Bill Clinton, Russia, and, and the arrogance with which uh, people poured into Russia. Uh, it was like a Klondike when I was there. Um, they were sort of evangelists. They were economists, transition economists, so-called. Uh, there were people who boasted that they were writing Russia's edicts and uh, Yeltsin's uh, um, decrees. And basically what happened in the West in, in an extremely neoconservative way uh, was in the 90s that the that, that, that Soviet Union had collapsed and America felt it could remake Russia in its image. This, of course, all collapsed. Um, uh, and... Uh, the real forces of Russian nationalism were evoked in the 90s, and someone like Putin was was created, uh, or rose to the rose to the fore. Putin now, after after a decade of high oil pr uh, price, and 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 feels that he has to restore Russia's power and Russia's image. Um, he's he feels he's doing that in in the Middle East in in his intervention. I think he's thinking big. I think he's thinking of a base in Syria, a base in Alexandria, and also another base in Tripoli. Um, and his whole idea is to get Russia respected again uh, and not ignored by um, uh, the eastward expansion of NATO. And again, from, from my tone, you can see that I sympathize with the Russians in terms of uh, uh, how they feel they're being treated by by a military superior and an arrogant uh, West. However, when it comes to what effect that has on the Arab world, which is now the place I'm writing for, about, it's just another form of colonialism. It's not Western colonialism, but it's certainly Russian colonialism. Um, and, and Russia now stands full square with some of the worst dictators um, in the Arab world, not least people who've moaned down their own people like uh, like Sisi, uh, Abdul Fattah el-Sisi, who's the military coup leader in, um, in, in Egypt. If you, look at, if you look at Putin's pals in, around the Middle East, they also include Benjamin Netanyahu, they include Sisi, they include Assad. These are people who are not interested in democracy. So... Um, uh, on the one hand, I sympathize with the way uh, Russia's been treated by the West. Um, however, as so often in, in foreign affairs, that one, one, one real mishandling lead, leads to another. And, 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 uh, and, and Russia now thinks because of the retreat that America has, has staged in, in, in the Middle East, uh, that there is an opportunity. So it's behaving uh, opportunistically. How this then is translated by uh, Donald Trump um, and his various CEOs that he's now appointing to very, very senior positions, uh, God alone knows. I mean, there are massive contradictions, for instance, in wishing to support, I'm just thinking from Trump's point of view, um, CC because he thinks he's a good guy and a strong guy and he's really, really got control of Egypt. Yeah, yeah, we can see that, you know, in a massacre worse than Tiananmen Square. But on the other hand, uh, be anti-Iranian. Um, that, that won't, that doesn't create a, a Syria policy. Does Trump want to allow Putin um, just to sort of carry on in, in an Assad in, in Syria? If he does, He's also allowing uh, Iran to expand. What I mean is that all of these dictators, 
and, and, and all of these policies uh, are now uh, uh, interrelated. I mean, the very big picture, I think, is, 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 is and I, again, I'm very conflicted like you. Um, the big picture in the, in, in the Middle East is, is basically a Western disintegration. Um, and I think that's a good thing. However, at the moment, it's being replaced by a whole bunch of regional powers, of which Russia is one. Um, and, uh, and there's chaos and mayhem. Absolutely. Uh, just to just to put a bow on that last point, I think that the the only point I would want to interject is that I I agree with what you're saying about uh, Russia allying with certain forces in the Middle East. But essentially, the way that I would look at it is it's basically Russia is uh, creating a stable of allies, you know, that are obviously dictatorial and obviously you know very dodgy in many many ways as a really a counterweight to the stable of dictators that the United States and the British have controlled for going on five generations now, whether it's the Saudi royal family, one of, you know, the reactionary feudal monarchy that controls that country, or the Qataris the same, or the Emirates, or, you know, Kuwait, or all of these countries where the United States and its allies have dominated and propped up all of these dictators and who have no regard for human rights or any kind of rights or any kind of principles of democracy. And so I think from Putin's perspective, what he sees is that he's basically using the methodology that has long since been laid out for him. And that's part of the problem we're facing. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, what I want is a Middle East that's free of dictators, whether it's sponsored by, by the Kremlin or sponsored by us. I couldn't agree with you more that our default position, particularly with the Arab Spring, was to support was to support the dictators. Uh, our default position, when a, when, a, when a very obviously a military coup was staged in Egypt, was to not declare it a coup. Uh, our default position, when uh, with with a very very shaky, uh, absolute uh, monarchy uh, in Saudi Arabia, is to suppress. Uh, that's what Blair did, you know, to, or uh, to, to suppress any in inquiry into very, very dodgy arms sales involving millions and millions of pounds of bribes. In fact, a, a friend of mine who, who um, was once given a carte blanche to sort of just open any door he wanted in, in our foreign office in, in Charles Street sort of opens the door of uh, someone who called himself head of policy and immediately said, OK, you're head of policy now. Um, tell me, what's the policy to Saudi Arabia? And the guy looked at him very, very long, uh, sir, something, 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 uh, from the very tip of his nose and said, uh, don't be so ridiculous. It's, uh, you know, it's 70,000 jobs in Lancashire. <laughs> you know, yeah, he wouldn't sure. have said that publicly and, and whatever, but that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think this is, there's a fascinating thing to be done, uh, and if I was going to go back to academia or write a PhD or do something, I would I would concentrate on how the relationship, the parent client relationship between us and, for instance, Saudi Arabia has been reversed. And it's, in fact, the Emiratis who tell the Brits what to do and the Saudis who tell uh, the Brits and the Americans what to do. And we sort of run and jump because they're so important to us. So absolutely, Putin is using a model um, which is disastrous. It's 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 one. Um, it's it, it's not because the other thing is that these dictators 
have no vision except self-preservation. Of course. They don't course. actually, they can't actually run Egypt. Uh, it's being run into the ground with billions and billions of dollars uh, of, of, of help that, uh, that's been given and everyone falls out. So um, I'm dreaming of a world and maybe I'll be long gone by the time it's actually uh, created where, um, you know, the Middle East is decided by elections, it's decided by governments and it's decided by, by or, you know, autonomous movements that are not dependent on 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 on. Uh, on not doing someone else's bidding. bidding. One last point I have to make, since it's kind of been uh, mentioned at least tangentially, and then I promise we'll go to our break, but um, just to illustrate the complexity of the Middle East in general and and, and Western policy and, and how people who have the best of intentions should read these things, if you look at what's happened in Egypt, you had a rightfully democratically elected government overthrown by a military strongman who is, you know, uh, carried out massacres against political rivals and so forth. And all of that is true. That narrative is 100% accurate. At the same time, students of the region also do understand the long and very, very shady relationship between the Muslim Brotherhood and Western intelligence, be it the US CIA or the the British MI6 and the, really the going back to the very founding of the Muslim Brotherhood. And there were many people in the region and experts outside the region in the West who know that the Muslim Brotherhood was in many ways used as a weapon against Arab nationalism, pan-Arab socialism, uh, Nasser specifically in Egypt. And so when we saw the, the, the overthrow of Morsi, in one way, it was an overthrow of a democratically elected leader. In another way, it was part of a much longer Longer and more complex, historically complex struggle between the Muslim Brotherhood and call it secular forces in the region. Those secular forces, of course, being wedded to the deep state with ties to the Pentagon and so forth. So it gets very, very complicated as you try to really parse it out with an eye towards history. Yeah, um, I mean, there are different forms of Muslim Brotherhood. There's a there's a bunch of guys in in Tunisia uh, that have not acted in the same way as the Egyptian Brotherhood did, um, uh, and who have uh, left power voluntarily and compromised. They're all quite right-wing in terms of uh, what their economic policy uh, is about. And undoubtedly, uh, these movements have been used as levers. Um, I think what really matters, though, is that... Uh, uh, a democratic process is set up. Um, I wasn't very keen on the Brotherhood um, reneging on their initial uh, promises not to seek the presidency uh, in Egypt. Um, however, thought the best way of um, um, of moving on with the transition was to vote them out. Um, of course, um, the Egyptian secular movement, who were being bought up by the Emiratis and the Saudis at the time, um, said that once you elect the Brotherhood once, you'll never have an election again. They had, they had five elections. Um, and, ob and the Brotherhood remains the biggest political party in Egypt, despite it being declared terrorists. Um, all opinion polls still say it's still a, a big force. What I think has to happen is uh, some very, very boring coalition building. Um, and uh, that's happening at, at the moment. But first, 
CC has to go. Um, but um, as you say, it's a complex picture. I think what, what one has to sort of concentrate on is not who's in power, but the actual process of making sure that there aren't coups and there are regular uh, uh, elections and people leave power. In Tunisia, uh, the Brotherhood left power. Um, and uh, uh, having established a constitution. Now, but, to, but Tunisia is a different place because, uh, in fact, the secular and the Islamist uh, parts were talking each other um, uh, under the dictator Ben Ali, um, and they talk to each other now, and there isn't that um, total um, uh, exclusionary uh, lack of trust uh, between secular and 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 Islamists, in um, and they've even actually stopped calling themselves uh, political Islamists. They call themselves conservative Muslims. Um, again, not not a label that um, I particularly like, um, but it is possible. They've shown that uh, there in in Tunisia and also in Morocco, they have shown sort of characteristics uh, which are democratic. Um, however. Um, we're a long way from that in Egypt, um, and the process of free elections uh, need, needs needs to be put underway, and and something like forty thousand people need to be let out of prison first. Absolutely. All right, let's take a quick break, and uh, we will continue the conversation again with David Hurst, editor in chief of Middle East Eye. Follow him on Twitter at David A Hurst. That's H E A R S T. Stick with us. We will be right back.
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with David Hurst, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Middle East Eye. Very important article that we've been discussing uh, regarding Aleppo and what we should be expecting uh, in the coming days, weeks, months, and sadly, probably years. Um, and one other aspect you brought up, David, to jump back into your article and back into the specific subject of Syria and, and, and moving forward in Syria, and I have to say, almost nobody is really taking this issue seriously, and that is, what is Russia going to be obligated, either morally and politically obligated or just obligated by the realities on the ground, what are they going to be obligated to do in Syria moving forward now that they have intervened, now that they are in in many ways the driving force of this war? I mean, obviously, Assad, uh, the Syrian Arab army, the, the forces of the Syrian state on the ground, certainly, but Russia is kind of the engine behind that. What obligations are they going to have? You mentioned, I mean, are the Russians going to have to start building field hospitals and are they going to have to start caring for troops? Are they going to have to station their own troops? Is that going to be temporary? Is that going to be permanent? What about reconstruction? Where is the money for reconstruction going to come from if Assad is still in power? A lot of these unanswered questions and kind of to to summarize that, my my real question is, does Russia have the kind of um, political and economic will that is going to be necessary to do what amounts to a post-war occupation? Um, that's an extremely good question. Um, it depends on your view about Russia, whether you believe it is a, uh, a resurgence, uh, you know, uh, if you believe all the propaganda about Russia, uh, that it is manipulating American elections, that it's trying to become some sort of uh, proto-Soviet uh, power again. Um, um, I actually think that Russia is actually much weaker. There's uh, no doubt about it. Absolutely. And, and um, it, it's operating pragmatically. I mean, I don't like Putin, but... Um, as I've said before, I, I, I see where he comes from. Um, and uh, in, in many senses, he's a sort of Western creation, uh, just by the sheer ignorance with which they handled Russia. Um, but talking right now about, about Aleppo, there are really serious problems. Uh, you know, what does victory look like? Victory looks like uh, ownership of a pile of ruins. Um, you Everyone's seen the pictures of what Aleppo is like. It is, it is, it is completely destroyed. Um, people are, are going to have to live there, unless there's a, a huge wave of another huge wave of of, of refugees. And the, and the three countries have taken the brunt. When you think of of of, of what a fuss um, uh, Europe has made of of Syrian refugees, the, the, the key countries that borne the brunt of of the refugees are Turkey. Uh, uh, Jordan and Lebanon, the three certainly Jordan and Lebanon, the three poorest countries in the in in, in the region. They've taken the the the, the lion's share of of welcoming in uh, the, the the refugees. And within Not, and within the eurozone, Greece, which is economically on life support, is taken by far more responsibility on the refugee question than nearly any other country in Europe, including those that are economically more or less stable. 
Yeah, I mean, and and just to look at sort of disgusting scenes of the Brits and the and the French, but particularly the Brits, not accepting people in 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 the camp in Calais. Yeah. Seeing that thing knocked down. You know, the numbers we're talking about are are nothing compared to what Greece has taken on. Um, and now, of course, if if uh, just to compound the 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 sort of complexity of the refugee problem, um, if uh, Erdogan makes good on his threat to open the borders again, because they're not going to get the visa waiver uh, that was the other side of the bargain uh, uh, with with Merkel. Then we're going to see a flood more of refugees. So basically, refugees are becoming a commodity, um, yes, uh, yes. Uh, which you can trade. Uh, it's almost like a futures market in refugees, um, and. <laughs> And Sisi is also asking for money for, for, for the refugees. So everyone is getting it on the app. Erdogan, Sisi. I mean, it's just awful. It is awful. Um, one of the things that really surprises me, um, when I look back at the history of, you know, the 1930s or whatever, and, I, and as a student, I said to myself, how can people be so brutal to each other? Actually, the answer is today. We live in a modern age of brutality, uh, you know, unbelievable brutality that, 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 that's going on. The, the, the Mediterranean has become a grave. Um, and we're still going to the Greek islands, sort of sunning ourselves. Um, uh, it's, it's, it, it's, there's unbelievable brutality being shown in, in, in modern times, literally underneath our, our noses. And our kids are going to say, or our grandchildren are going to say, you were around uh, when, when, when uh, Aleppo was being born. What did you do about it? You know? Uh, and I'm not going to be able to tell them much because uh, we just all tolerated this or our government sort of tolerated it. So what, again, sorry to digress, but um, the, the brutality uh, of, of the modern age is, is unbelievable. Um, and um, what does Russian inherit? Russian inherits a whole bunch of ruins. <clears throat> I think what we can say as analysts is that if it's true that Russian air power made the big difference and was the turning point in, in the war, it is also true that if Russia tries to retreat now and says, fine, right, mission accomplished, as Bush and Blair tried to do several times uh, 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 in Iraq, what will happen is that um, the rebels will start re-advancing because um, with Hezbollah and with the Iranian a Revolutionary Guard, um, Assad's forces aren't strong enough to keep these ruins under their control. And we've seen what's now happened um, in Palmyra. Palmyra was, was uh, quote unquote, liberated, to use that word again, uh, from uh, the uh, IS uh, months ago. Um, the IS have now taken back parts of, of the town and troops that are, that, that were, uh, trying to take East Aleppo have been government troops, um, have been reallocated to try and retake Palmyra. So what you've got is whack-a-mole. You've got a, you know, a, a whole bunch of different fronts and the same troops aren't enough to um, take uh, East Aleppo, finish the job off in the East Aleppo and, and keep uh, Palmyra free of, of IS. Now, if for some reason you take Russia out of that equation, um, the war tilts once more in favour of, 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 of the rebel side, um, however you define those rebels. Um, and uh, so my 
my calculation is that Russia will not be able to retreat and that Russia will have a permanent operation. First, in providing um, hospitals that don't exist, um, then in providing the protection for those hospitals, and then in providing the protection for the protection force. They'll become an awful lot of targets on the ground for, for IEDs. So um, uh, it, that's why I said initially, uh, uh, several minutes ago, that uh, it will be, having taken Aleppo, uh, it'll be in Russia's interest to say, fine, that's it, that's the end of the war, fighting over, now let's talk about a ceasefire. What will then happen, of course, is the rebels won't allow a ceasefire. Um, and or, or one faction will 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 keep on fighting, um, but uh, in the long term, uh, a, a a Syria uh, which needs vast numbers of Russian troops is not going to be sustainable for Russia because it, like Saudi Arabia, it's not that rich, um, and um, it won't be able to s sustain the sort of uh, occupation. Uh, that uh, Assad is envisaging. The other thing to remember is that it took quite a lot of time for Russia to decide to enter this war as a as a as an active participant. The initial uh, relationship between Assad and Putin was really quite cool, um, and Putin was not particularly uh, uh, a great friend of Assad. In fact, at that time, Erdogan was a friend of Assad. And Erdogan and Assad went on holidays together. In fact, and not to oh, mention not to mention that Assad was uh, doing yeoman service for the CIA under the Bush administration with the extraordinary rendition program and the torturing of uh, suspected uh, militants in the so-called war on terror. So the ground has certainly shifted quite a bit. Absolutely, absolutely. As indeed Gaddafi was. You know, Gaddafi was very surprised when the West turned on him. Because he said, well, hang on a moment, uh, you know, I've done so much for you. Well, and not only that, Gaddafi, I think his biggest uh, concession, and I, I think this was, I hate to say it, but probably the tragic mistake, uh, was getting rid of the uh, the large-scale weapons program as a, yeah. as a sort of salve to his uh, uh, relationships with European leaders. He felt that he could sort of be insulated from the imperial agenda, as it were, if he were to give up the weapons program and how sadly mistaken he was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He he gave up WMD, um, and uh, curiously, the North Koreans haven't made the same mistake. Yeah, gee, I wonder why. <laughs> Quite. Um, so uh, yes, coming back to this, the, the question, long term, yes, short term, uh, I think Putin has played a blinder and uh, in in a, in a series of tactical moves has outmaneuvered uh, a retreating America um, uh, and 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 the West. Uh, long term, however, uh, Russia will need the support of the international community and will need his relationship now with, with Turkey um, and all the backdoor procedures to, to, to try and stabilize the situation in, in, in a shattered uh, Syria, because long term, it doesn't look, uh, an occupation of Syria doesn't look viable from, from 
uh, Moscow's point of view. Well, look, I mean, a long-term occupation of Syria doesn't look viable from anybody's point of view at any time. But for the Russians to be engaging in something like that, particularly, it must be said, against the backdrop of what amounts to long-term oil price depression, uh, Mm. it it seems to me uh, untenable for Moscow. And I don't think that Moscow's strategic planners are so dumb as to not understand that. I think they perfectly understand that, which is why in many ways I think you could say they find themselves between a rock and a hard place. Now, the final question on that before I I just want to shift gears a little bit in the time remaining that we have. um, The final question is to what extent do the Russians believe or have the Russians actually learned the lessons of Afghanistan? Because in many ways, this is kind of shaping up similarly. In other words, the Russians intervene to prop up a government that is friendly to them, that is amenable to their geopolitical ambitions. They expend a lot of you know, so-called quote-unquote treasure in doing so, put themselves in a very politically difficult situation in which there is a long-term prolonged in insurgency, and ultimately we know what happened to the Soviets in Afghanistan and the ramifications for them. I wonder, as this situation in Syria begins to shape up in in many ways quite similarly, are the Russians going to do something different? Are they going to demonstrate an understanding of history and change what they might uh, otherwise have uh, pursued? I'm not sure they are at at the moment. The only thing I would say is that uh, the Soviet Union was a much more, uh, uh, and I don't want this misinterpreted, but it, it was a much more intellectually powerful place than uh, post-Soviet Russia is. Yes, and um, ideologically driven. It was ideologically driven. Um, and uh, Putin's ideology is difficult to fathom. I suppose it is some form of uh, nationalism. Um but it isn't driven by um, anything that we would know of as a collective sharing of power. Um, uh, he's personally very, very wealthy. Um, he's surrounded by extremely wealthy people himself. Um, it's, I like to think the worst of both worlds. It's the sort of authoritarianism of the Soviet period, but also the, you know, the total... Uh, 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 selfishness and and wealth grabbing or Klondike of the Yeltsin period. Soviet um, authoritarianism plus subservience to capitalism. Yeah, exactly. I.e., the worst of both worlds. Um, but I think I, I, I mean I. Th- but but you know the Soviet Union's reach was global. I don't think Russia's reach is global in in in, in that sense. Um, and it, it's it it formed an effective counterweight the Soviet Union to um, to to the West. I don't think Russia is a counterweight to the West. What I would say, though, is, and we haven't discussed this, and maybe I, I don't want to drag you off into, a, into another direction. I love but, other directions. Okay, but then we'll to go completely into another direction. And one thing that you could think of as uh, an idea that Trump has, and this, again, sounds crazy, um, is that Trump... Uh, wants to uh, unravel the relationship between uh, Russia and China. He wants to make an enemy of China. Um, And to do that, he wants to uh, quieten down Russia. Uh, What better way than to appoint 
the chief executive of ExxonMobil, uh, Rex Tillerson, um, as Secretary of State. Tillerson has um, a very long history of dealing with the Russian oligarchs, in particular, the right-hand man to Putin, who's a guy called Sechin, mm-hmm. um, who runs Rosneft. So the nexus between politics and oil is going to become much, much more explicit. We talked about depressing the oil price. But if Trump does have a a foreign policy idea, and again, this is all extremely speculative. But if he does appoint Tillerson, who um, uh, is up to his eyes in deals with uh, Rosneft and with uh, this guy, Igor Sechin, um, he... you would have America fashioning policies which ease up the sanctions on Russia that allows basically Russia to run around in Syria. Um, And the price for doing that is to have Russia on side when it comes to, uh, quote, unquote, confronting China in the South China Sea. Uh, if there is if there is a geostrategic trend here, and again, all, all of this is highly speculative, I would see a trade-off, a Trump-like trade-off, and say, we'll buy Russia again in order to um, confront or attack China. And I let me say this. I agree 1,000%. I, I was going to be writing some pieces on that in the coming weeks exactly on that subject. And I would pose one other sort of um, aspect to that policy. I think what we can really describe this as, to use the uh, parlance of the U.S. Uh, political establishment or geopolitical establishment, this, is, this would be the equivalent of Trump's pivot. Right. This is Trump's pivot and his pivot is towards the Russians away from the Chinese. But what does that actually look like? I think if you look at the composition of Trump's incoming administration, the front line of that pivot is Iran. There's no doubt about that. And so what it seems to me where Syria fits into this is essentially Trump making a deal with Putin to let the Russians have Syria, have their way with Syria, achieve their strategic objectives objectives and so forth if in trade-off the russians will throw the iranians under the bus let the u.s pivot towards a more uh hawkish stance against iran really returning us back to the darkest days of the 2007 period of the bush administration when we really felt we were on the brink of a war with iran and simultaneously using that as a stepping stone towards an anti-china posture or maybe we could say an increasingly belligerent anti-china posture I think that sort of a pivot is really the new direction of U.S. geopolitical imperatives under Trump. Yes. Um, the only thing I would add to that is, as far as Syria is concerned, um, that also is going to throw Assad under a bus as well, because the Syrians need the Iranians as much as they need the Russians. So there's a, there, 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 there's, there's a problem with Syria if, if you start tearing up the agreement. I was talking to the deputy foreign minister of, of, of Iran at one of these conferences that I attended, and it was on the, on the record. And he said, it's not going to be that easy just to tear up an international agreement because it's P5 plus one. It's not America, Iran. Um, it's lodged in the United Nations. Um, and we're a country. Um, we're not a, uh, a, a tiny little state. We're, we're, we're used to sanctions. 
uh, we can make our own arms, uh, we can make our own oil, uh, we can make our own economy, and uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to um, unravel this deal. The other thing that he told me was that we've done our deal. You know, we've done our part of the deal. And if, 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 if this was about getting rid of centrifuges, they have got rid of centrifuges. Um, um, so I yeah. think you're right. I, th I think, you know, taking on Iran, what I'm saying is, uh, from the point of view of America, taking on Iran isn't going to be so funny um, because it, it's, uh, as they keep on saying, it's a real state. And it's exactly what uh, uh, Israel wants and Netanyahu wants. Netanyahu wants to bomb Iran. Um, and, hey, uh, Obama has just given him, uh, given them uh, F-35s. Um, you know, um, so the the whole this whole relationship between between superpowers or former superpowers and these client states is a very very odd and interesting one. Um, but because, be, I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, because if you don't like what a country is doing, but say have these arms anyway, they will get more power, um, and Israel will find itself empowered under a Trump administration. Oh, I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, I don't think that anybody, at least not with any understanding of how politics works, believes that Trump is anything other than a friend to Netanyahu. In many ways, ideologically, they share a lot of similarities. So um, I don't think that that is really in doubt. What I do, what I do want to say though, is that uh, one element that you actually brought up in your excellent piece had to do with reconstruction and reconstruction in Syria. And one of the things that had been brought up a number of times over the last, I would say, 12 to 18 months was going to be that a number of international players were being courted for a potential reconstruction process, including the Chinese, who probably are the world leaders in terms of, you know, large scale infrastructure building, reconstruction, things like that uh, and obviously f massive capital investments on a large scale. Now, if what we're just kind of laying out it, rather speculatively, if that were to play out, namely that the Russians get closer with the U.S., that Russia gets what they want in Syria, but China feels increasingly uh, targeted. I think it's unlikely that China is going to invest significantly in a reconstruction in Syria or anywhere else where they feel they're being frozen out. So again, I think this is going to change significantly the nature of the relations between the U.S. and China and between China and Russia. Remember, it was less than two years ago, the Russians signed this massive deal with the Chinese, upwards of $500 billion over 30 years when the, when the sanctions were imposed against the Russians. Watch the Russians turn away from that and pivot back towards Europe and the United States. We're seeing a massive shakeup of the geopolitical scene. Yes, absolutely. Um, and um, uh, it's not necessarily going to produce, uh, you know, there's this phrase that people keep talking about, the world order. I don't think there's a world order anymore. Uh, and when there was a world order, it was a pretty unpleasant one. Um I'd far rather see a sort of reshaping um, uh, of certainly of the Middle East, which empowers the people of the Middle East, um, not dictators and, 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 and not colonial powers. But if we're getting into this game of divvying up, dividing up spoils of war, um, there's another factor that comes in. And this is this goes back to a very important point about reconstruction. Reconstruction. Basically, now in this new so-called world order, if you break it, uh, uh, you have to make it. 
you, you it, it's yours you own it you own the ruins that that, that you've created that was very very much uh, the case in in post invasion uh, iraq uh, for america and it will be just as much the case for russia in syria um, and and yeah why would the the chinese um, invest any anything in syria um, when there could be a pivot towards their own strategic interests in 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 the south china sea um, which has been building for some time yep. Uh, yep. but but that 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 is actually a classic you know geopolitical um uh, contest, a very old-fashioned one, which is all also to do with energy, what lies underneath the South China Sea. There's no doubt. And, and and again, the Chinese have made significant inroads in Afghanistan in positioning themselves for a post-occupation reality in Afghanistan. They're, they're perfectly aligned and ready, in fact, to invest billions of dollars in a reconstruction in Afghanistan. They have close ties with intermediaries with the Taliban, actually direct talks with the Taliban in Doha and elsewhere. The Chinese have, have put themselves in a very critically important position vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan. And I think that there were some people who were arguing that China was angling to do similarly in Syria once the conflict began to wind down. And I think with all of these changes, with all of what's happening in the region, I think that's probably off the table. And the Chinese are likely recalibrating how they view their role, not only in the Middle East, but more broadly in Asia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... I mean, the only thing is, the only rider is that that that, that Trump um, changes his mind all the time, sometime in the middle of the night, uh, sometimes, and sometimes um, via a tweet, sometimes via a tweet. And uh, a, a guy with so much ego and so much self-belief, uh, and who's also so fragile, and who's so transactional in his in his thinking. He doesn't believe in policy wonks. He believes in in, in businessmen. Um, and to reduce uh, the really quite fragile network of relationships in international politics to a series of deals or transactions um, is going to be hairy to uh, to 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 watch because. You could, you know, thieves fall out um, and uh, you could very, very easily start a new war um, uh, in, in, in when, when a deal goes wrong um, in, in any number of ways. Um, you're absolutely right. China has been watching all of these uh, uh, disasters. I mean, it's been a series of disastrous wars um, of which the the Syria intervention or non-intervention or intervention light uh, uh, was one. Um, the desperate um, and you know I'm speaking here as a sort of a Brit. Uh, um, the desperate uh, collapse of the left um, in both Britain and 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 America and the rise of of, of the right. Uh, is unfortunately um, one consequence uh, of, of the collapse of uh, the sort of neoliberal and neoconservative centre ground uh, of 
left and right of of Blair, Clinton, uh, and uh, we're not paying for their mistakes. Um, what I really would like to see is a resurgence of a, a genuine left wing um, that reclaims some of the territory that's the, that, that that has been lost now to to uh, a whole bunch of uh, really questionable leaders. I mean, it, it, very very broadly, I think what's happened since with a very broad brush since the end of the 1990s and the end of, of the Soviet Union is that uh, these guys, the guys who are now in power, have replaced one demon with another. They were anti-communists. Um, and for them, communism was this sort of uh, a global system that, that, that was a threat everywhere they looked, including fifth columns and behind them. They've replaced that anti-communism with... Um, uh, uh, an anti anti Islam, um, and um, and they're trying to build up this sort of enemy with exactly the same sort of characteristics. Uh, call them Islamists, they call them uh, jihadis, uh, Muslims, um, and they're trying to build up this sort of uh, big global enemy. Um, but what matters in all of this is 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 the fear that they create. Uh, which is highly, highly profitable uh, for the industries that they 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 back, and we're, we're replacing one system built on mutual fear with another system built on mutual fear. Very important point. Okay, so huh, we're over the time already, certainly, but uh, we kind of took a little bit of a detour into global geopolitical questions, and I do want to finish up our conversation with uh, return to Syria and some very key questions that you raise in your piece, uh, specifically. Um, you describe two post-Aleppo scenarios that I think are very plausible uh, and I think that really need to be kind of understood in their proper context. So can you just lay out, uh, you know, however you feel comfortable doing, exactly how you view these two post-Aleppo scenarios and uh, where you see it going either way? Well, um one is a, a scenario where basically the rebel opposition, however you define them, and Russia defines them as terrorists, um, pack up and go home, basically. Uh, they vanish. They go, they say, uh, we've lost, and uh, they stop becoming a military force, um, and the civilians, more civilians go uh, and live permanently as refugees. Um, that's one scenario. Uh, uh, I don't think that's going to happen because of Afghanistan, because of the sheer... Uh, but for that to happen, they would basically uh, abandon the sort of blood debt that they've, they've got. Uh, the, they, they would have died and their families would have died for nothing. Um, the more likely scenario is that what you're going to have is a... Uh, an attempt by Russia uh, and and Assad to uh, declare victory, um, and then you're going to have a, a, a new war, uh, which is going to be a, a guerrilla war in the old sense of the word, um, which is going to be full of IEDs um, and uh, a, uh, a a a series of. Uh, situations where um, the 
actual front lines are are very very fluid this may not be a war for territory but it will certainly be a war for legitimacy um and even if you get um uh, a ceasefire or you you get a conference i would see the factors number of factors uh at, at eroding uh, a, a form of ceasefire uh, to be very, very important. I would think ceasefires would be very fragile and the actual factors that ca cause ceasefires to fall apart would be really quite strong. Um, we're nowhere near that, that there at the moment. What we've, what, what we've got at the moment as we speak is, is, a, is a halted offensive. Um, the rebels say that although 80% of East Aleppo has fallen, um, they've stopped the, the advance. Um, and you've got a new front opening up in Palmyra again, uh, as we've talked about. Um, but the most likely scenario, and I say this with absolutely no joy, is for uh, another few, few years more uh, of, of warfare until, uh, until the two sides properly sit down and say, hey, all we've got, all we've won on either side is just a bunch of ruins. And we've, we've got to try and you know, rebuild the country. Um, and we've got to do it uh, on non-sectarian terms so that so that whatever force is then put in protects both sides um, uh, in, 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 in the in, uh, in this. I mean, if you looked, if you look at how long the Lebanese civil war took and how long reconstruction took after the Lebanese civil war, you're looking at exactly the same time frames, uh, if not longer time frames uh, for Syria. Yes, I, I unfortunately think that there's a lot of truth in that. Um, here's another question, though, that, that comes up when you read uh, the piece and, and, and kind of reading into some of what you're saying. Um, this notion of the rebels returning to their, you know, quote unquote, democratic origins, say, you know, circa 2011, I, I mean, I hate to be take a cynical view of that idea, but unfortunately I'm going to because I'm not sure that that is even uh, possible, at least given the current situation. And I'll tell you why, because even if we were to, even if we were to assume that there are significant changes where the rebel, the rebel side is forced into, uh, you know, an acceptance of say, you know, their position of weakness or what have you, you have a lot of the, you know, more secular inclined, let's let's call them pro-democratic forces in the opposition that have in many ways not been part of a lot of the fighting over the course of the last few years. It's very difficult to then impose them on the militant rebels who have been fighting, who have been shedding blood and saying, well, you're going to need to accept these people. They're now going to need to be the face of the rebel side and they're going to be the ones who are going to be negotiating. In other words, it's almost it, it, it almost strikes me as a physical impossibility to remake the character of the opposition as this war has gone on. And if you're one of the Islamist militants, say Arar al-Sham or you know Jabhat al-Nusra or Fatah al-Sham or whatever, any number of these groups, any number of these coalitions, you're going to look at these people and say. I'm sorry, who the F are you to come in here and tell me how to negotiate or how to fight? You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, you've made a very good point there. Um, yes, it's a bit of a pipe dream. Um, uh, I think the point I was trying to make at the end of the article was 
uh, unity. Um, the, 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 one of the reasons why uh, they collapsed was because they weren't unified. Um, and they're now going to have to come, come up with uh, a unity plan. Um, and if they don't, then uh, maybe the first scenario will, will, will become true. But they have to unite. Um, and they also have to kick out uh, the jihadis. Um, this has to be. This has to unite under a a a, uh, a front. Now, you know, kicking out the jihadis when they've been basically the the cutting edge um, uh, of of the firepower uh, is going to be incredibly difficult. Um, it's impossible uh, if those jihadis continue to be supported from outside. That's the main point. If the f- weapons keep flowing and the money keeps flowing, whether from Riyadh or from Doha or from Ankara or wherever, if that continues, there is no way to kick out the jihadis. It's simply not possible. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, and you see the problem in trying to work out you can work on one piece of the jigsaw puzzle, but you've actually got to work on all the pieces of this fractured jigsaw puzzle at the same time. Um, and when it comes to Saudi, or when it comes to Qatar, when it comes to Turkey or whatever, everyone's now got their own uh, interests. And it's, it, it's impossible to see them just suddenly say, right, that's it, finished, um, I'm off out of here. Because everyone sees in Syria a front line for a different war. There are at least three or four different wars going on in Syria at the yeah. same time. And, and that's and, and that's that's the nightmare scenario. So this is going to be a very, very difficult time. And and just to illustrate that point further in this entire conversation, trying to get at some of the complexities of this war, we have yet to even say the word Kurds. That makes this a much more complicated scenario. We have yet to even mention a number of aspects of this conflict. So that I, I think only further illustrates the complexity here. And one last point I just want to mention on this question of unity. One thing for those of us who study revolutions, who study, you know, the history of uh, revolutionary movements in general, um, it is the the one constant you'll have is that forces on, uh, you know, on an anti-government side, they are united by their opposition to something. They are almost never united in terms of their values, in terms of their politics, in terms of their goals. And that's one of the problems here. The rebels, uh, you know, or terrorists or whatever your colored language might want to be, they are united solely by their hatred of Assad. They are not united in terms of their goals of what a future Syria would look like, in terms of what the rights of women would be, in terms of what democracy would look like, or anything. In other words, it's very difficult to envision a united opposition when there's so little that unites them short of Assad. Yes. um, I I mean, there is one factor that is constantly mentioned to me when I I talk to Syrians, uh, uh, and that you have left out of that of that description is actually the word Syria itself and a um, I don't know how to put this but a uh, a patriotism or uh, a cultural memory of Syria as a united country Syrians working together um, that comes up in conversations quite a lot when they say we're not Islamists we're not we're not uh, Christians we're Syrians first. It was said a lot during the first year of this uprising um, in 2011. 
uh, and then disappeared, of course, as the arms started appearing um, and as people started getting shot. But they said, we're here as Syrians. Uh, we're not here as uh, um, uh, a sectarian force. Now, if that if that survives in some way or if that returns in some way, I think that will be a positive a bonding uh, um, uh, agent um, in, in, in a post-war scenario. But as we both can tell from the tone of this conversation, we both think that is a long, long, long way off. Sadly, sadly, I think we do and we agree and we'll have to leave it there. Uh, great, great conversation. I want to thank you for coming on the show. David Hurst, the editor-in-chief of Middle East Eye. Uh, obviously follow his work on Middle East Eye and Middle East Eye in general, an excellent source. Also uh, follow him on Twitter at David A. Hurst. That's H-E-A-R-S-T. Uh, David Hurst, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you as always for listening, and we'll speak to you again next week. <laughs>